Well, it is good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here and coming out to worship the Lord with us. Psalm number 59 in the Word of God. As is usual, I have a bit of an intro to read to you. I'll ask you to just work at listening for a moment, if you would. Psalm 59 is a historical psalm which is set during the lifetime of David. We have had several of these historical psalms appearing since Psalm 51. So far, Psalm 51, 52, 54, 56, 57, and now 59 and 60 are all historicals. For more detailed notes on the previous psalms, please reference the studies we did earlier. But for our purposes this morning, Psalm 60 looks ahead to something which occurred much later in David's future, while Psalm 59 looks back to a past incident in the life of David. Please notice the inscription in the heading of the 59th Psalm. This is another one of the rare psalms where we are given a definite historical setting for the writing of this great poem. Notice it said, When Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. When Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. The full story behind the writing of the 59th Psalm is found in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 19, verses 11 through 18. But in summary, if you remember David's great victory over Goliath, which God gave to him, afterwards the women sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands in 1 Samuel 18 and verse 7. Well, Saul became very jealous over the future king of Israel and threw his spear in an attempt to murder David in both 1 Samuel 18, 10 and 11 and 1 Samuel 19, 9 and 10. But in each instance, David was able to escape. After the second attempt on his life, David felt it necessary to flee to his home and seek refuge there. Saul then sent soldiers to surround David's house, watch and wait for David, and to kill him the following morning. David was married to Saul's daughter Michal at the time, and Michal and David were on good terms. David's wife loved him and warned her husband, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. In 1 Samuel 19 and verse 11. Michal knew her father well, as did her brother Jonathan, both of whom were David's dear friends. So that night, Michal let David down through a window of the house in order for him to escape. Michal also bought David more time by putting a mannequin in his bed, covering it with a blanket, and put goat's hair on top of the mannequin's head. When the soldiers came the next morning, it looked like David was in bed there sleeping. Michal said, he is ill, and the soldiers reported this to King Saul. Saul ordered David to be brought to him so he could kill him anyway. But as the soldiers returned to David's home, they discovered the ploy. 
David had long escaped. With this setting in mind, the words of Psalm 59 make perfect sense. Only the psalm was probably expanded a little while later in David's life and applied more broadly to the life lessons he learned in those earlier days. I want to draw your attention to two statements found. It's actually three statements found in Psalm 59. In verse 5 and verse 8, notice the phrase, all nations. Verse 5, he says, You, O Lord, God of hosts, or the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. But then also in verse number 8, he said, But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Notice also verse 13. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Now, what does this mean? Well, the point is, is just as God protected David from the soldiers which surrounded his house and threatened to kill him, later in David's life when he's the king, David looks back and reflects on that situation that God saved him from. God protected him. God delivered him from the soldiers that surrounded his house and were seeking to kill him. Now David applies what God did back then to his current situation as Israel is a nation that is seeking to honor and glorify God and they're surrounded by hostile forces as well, just like David was. David looks back to the time when God protected him, when the evil soldiers of Saul surrounded his house and threatened to kill him, and he said, now I'm the king of Israel and I've got whole nations that are surrounding us threatening our livelihood and David says that God will deliver Israel as a nation just like God delivered David from the soldiers which surrounded his house and just as God protected David and Israel from the multitudes of enemies which surrounded them in their day so likewise God is able to protect and deliver his people and his church in our day as we are surrounded by enemies as well. Aren't you glad? Dr. Marvin E. Tate, the great Old Testament scholar from Southern Seminary, he said, quote, this psalm reminds us that we have not escaped the problem of enemies and their evil work in human society. The dogs prowl about in our communities and towns as they did in the ancient world. Dogs which embody the devouring malignant persons and forces in human affairs. Law no longer mediated justice. Dr. Tate reminds us today that, quote, like ancient Israelite communities, we too are dependent on Yahweh, the God of Israel, for our deliverance. May we come to see with the eyes of faith God and his amazing protecting graces in the lives of those who are his trusting children. May we watch for and sing praises to God our fortress like David did. I'll repeat this statement. May we come to see with the eyes of faith 
God and his amazing protecting graces in the lives of those who are his trusting children so we may watch for and sing praises to God our fortress. Here are four simple points this morning which help us to receive the message of the 59th Psalm. Number one, David's first prayer to God. There are two great prayers recorded for us in the 59th Psalm. The first prayer is verses one through five and that's the first point. The second point is David's doggish enemies in verses 6 through 7 and also verses 14 through 15. David's doggish enemies. The third point is David's second prayer to God in verses 10 through 13. And the final point is two refreshing refrains in verse 9 and 17. So that's the first prayer, point one, verses one through five. David's doggish enemies. The second point, verses six through seven, verses 14 and 15. The third point is David's second prayer to God, verses 13, 10 through 13, excuse me. And last but not least, two refreshing refrains in verses nine and 17 of Psalm 59. Sometimes modern readers of the Psalms may find it difficult to relate to the perils which David faced. We are surrounded by luxuries and the amenities of our modern American society. There is often a disconnect between what we read in the Bible and what our life experiences are like. I highly doubt that anybody in here has ever had the experience of having soldiers from a king surround your house waiting to kill you, like David did. But in these ways, in this way, what we need to do is take the Bible at its word. We oftentimes find it difficult to relate but just because we find it difficult to relate to the Bible, that doesn't make the Bible untrue or any less true. It's an urgent prayer, but it's also an articulate prayer. This is the first point. Notice the urgency of David's prayer in verses 1 and 2. There are actually four imperatives found in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 59. Look, he said, deliver me in verse 1. Then he said, protect me. And then in verse 2, he says, deliver me again. And then he says, save me. Notice the urgency of his prayer. He said, deliver me. He said, protect me. He said, deliver me again. And then he said, save me. This is a man who is very urgent. There is an immediacy in this prayer. There is a desperation in David's prayer. Now, you may never have had enemies of a great king and the soldiers of a great king surrounding your house threatening to kill you. But you nevertheless have had prayers which caused urgency in your own heart and mind. Notice that just because David is urgent in his prayer, he's also articulate. In the midst of his many urgencies in this prayer, the sweet psalmist of Israel presents thoughtful, well-reasoned petitions to God. David says God should hear his prayer. 
And David gives no less than three reasons in verses 1 through 5 why he says God should hear his prayer. Number one, David says, God, I'm in danger. Number two, David says, God, I'm innocent. And number three, David confesses who God is. David said, Lord, you should answer my prayer because I'm in danger. Then David said, Lord, you should answer my prayer because I'm innocent of what they're charging me with. And then he said, Lord, you need to answer my prayer because who you are. And this is a very good example and model to follow in our prayer lives. When was the last time that you prayed that God would do something, but then you also gave God good reasons why he should? When we think out and articulate and give reasons to God why God should answer our prayer, what we're doing is we are serious about getting our prayers answered. If we tell God, God, you should answer my prayer, one reason, two reasons, three reasons, and those are clearly thought out, well-reasoned, thoughtful petitions telling God why he should answer your prayer, what that does is it shows how serious you are about getting your prayers answered before God. Now, you don't need to tell God how serious you are. He already knows. But what we need to do is remind ourselves of the urgency and the severity of getting our prayers answered. Let me give you some practical advice. David says, God, I'm in danger. Answer my prayer in verse 3. He said, For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. While David knows that God is omniscient, omni-science, all knowledge. God has all knowledge. God is omniscient. And David knows that God knows all things. That doesn't stop David from crying out to God and informing him of what he's dealing with. Let me tell it to you this way. If you're facing danger, tell God all about it. Don't be afraid to not tell God about the danger that you're facing. Somebody says, well, I don't know that I've ever had enemy soldiers surround my house. No, but you have had the danger of a medical condition surrounding you. If you have a dangerous medical condition and you need healing, tell God about it. God wants to hear from you. Someone says, well, I've never had soldiers surrounding my house trying to kill me, but you have had the danger maybe of a marriage that's been on the rocks. If a marriage is on the rocks and it's ending to come in failure, that is a dangerous thing. If you have a med medical condition that's threatening your life or a medical condition that's threatening the life of someone others, that's a very dangerous thing. What is another great danger? The the." Our enemy soldiers surround our homes all the time. And we're in danger sometimes of losing faith in God. Aren't we? Have you ever felt like you might lose your faith in God? I have. I definitely have. More than once. And it's because enemy soldiers were surrounding my house, casting stones of doubt and shooting arrows of doubt into my heart and in my mind. If you've ever had a marriage on the rocks or you know somebody that's had a marriage on the rocks, that's a dangerous place to be. Enemy soldiers are surrounding your marriage from an evil king. His name is Satan. <laughs> he wants nothing more to bring you and your loved ones down, as we discussed last week. A dangerous medical condition surrounding you. 
Maybe you're in danger of lacking wisdom of what you should do in a particular situation. Your decisions matter. What you decide today affects your children tomorrow. And we're surrounded by dangers all the time. Look outside. Do you see them? If you feel that you're in danger, remember the words of the aged saint who told God when people and the devil were threatening him. He said, quote, God, your property is in danger, end quote. Think about that. God, your property is in danger. Who, what is God's property? We are. Did you know that you're very expensive if you're a Christian? You say, how much did I cost? You cost the eternal blood of the Son of God. You're very expensive. It cost Jesus his life to buy you from the slave market of sin and redemption and salvation. That's a heavy price. Tell God his property's in danger. And look in the mirror. Because <laughs> it's true, isn't it? I would have to say that dangers surround us on all sides all the time. Just like they did David. When you face danger, tell God about the dangers that you face. Be detailed about it. He wants to hear from you. Secondly, David claims his innocence, verses 3 and 4. Notice he said, For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine. David says, What they're charging me with, I didn't do. And he really did not do it. He didn't say, I'm sinless. That's not what David's saying. He's not that foolish. Later on, he's going to tell you, In sin and iniquity, my mother shaped me. I was shaping in sin and iniquity in Psalm 51. David knows that he's a sinner, but what he's doing is he is confessing that the charges that are being brought against him, they are charges which he did not do. And he was innocent, wasn't he? Remember, here is a powerful truth. If we are truly innocent of doing wrong to our fellow human being and we're being falsely accused, you can pray boldly to God for vindication. You can say, God, what they're charging me with, what they're saying about me, none of that's true. I didn't do it. Or you can say, it's a twisted truth. See, one of the worst things that can happen is not that people can speak untruths about us. Because sometimes untruths just are like water that rolls off the duck's back. You just know that's not true. They're just being ugly. But when somebody twists something that you said, or when they misapply something that you said, or they manipulate something that you said to make themselves out to be better, or to make themselves look good, that really hurts. Because what they're doing is they're taking your words and they're making you say something that you never really said. But if you are innocent, that is tremendous ammunition and food for your prayers. It's fuel for a fiery prayer. Lord, they're charging me. They're making accusations. I didn't do it. You can claim your innocence and then ask God to vindicate you. David was so guiltless of any wrongdoing that when Saul had Ahimelech, the priest of Nob, before him, I want to read you this verse. This is such a telling verse. This is the priest of Ahimelech. The priest Ahimelech, the priest of Nod. 
You remember when Saul accused Ahimelech of conspiracy with David, he said these words in 1 Samuel twenty two fourteen. He said, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in all your house? Ahimelech said David was faithful. That he was the captain of the bodyguard and that he was honored in Saul's house. This is the highest, one of the highest ranking priests in Israel at this time, declaring David's faithfulness. And you know the story, Ahimelech is going to be put to death. And his last words are the faithfulness of David to King Saul. And yet they're after him, trying to kill him. He's in a precarious spot. Thirdly, what David does is he confesses the character of God. This is one of the most powerful weapons that you have in your arsenal of your prayer life. Prayer warriors, this is your sword. Your sword in the prayer closet is who God is, prayer warriors. Confessing who God is. Believing who God is. Notice the mouthful in verse 5 of God's names that David mentions. Verse 5, he says, You, Lord, God of hosts, are God of Israel. Lord, Lord, God, God, all over the place. He's God-centered in his prayer. But I want to break down this very powerful phrase, Lord, God of hosts. Literally, Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth. It means Lord, God, armies. I wonder what that means. Lord, God, armies. Well, that means that as David is thinking about these doggish soldiers surrounding his house, threatening his life, David calls upon the God of heaven who has the infinite armies of heaven at his disposal. Literally, Lord of hosts. Who are the hosts? It's the heavenly hosts. How many of them are there? We don't know because we can't count that high. The kids all the time like to ask me, Daddy, what's the highest number? And I always think I'm smart. I say a Googleplex. You liked that, didn't you? Did you know that? How many people knew about a Googleplex? That's basically infinite. If you say Googleplex, that means numbers are infinite, and you've won. You've answered the question. How high do numbers go? Well, they're infinite. They're Googleplex. How many armies does God have at his disposal? A Googleplex. As many as you can count, and infinitely more than that. And as David sees these doggish soldiers surrounding his house... He sees the infinitely greater armies of God surrounding those dogged soldiers. That's faith. And this empowers David's prayer. The great Bible commentator Leupold says, quote, The writer recalls God's unique power by employing the various and most familiar names by which he was known in Israel. He is right, and we can also pray Lord God, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, and my God. 
David has presented a threefold powerful argumentation as to why God should answer his prayer. The last thing he says is because, Lord, you are the God and the commander of all the hosts and the armies of heaven. Secondly, David's doggish enemies. Verses 6 and 7, each, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. Verses 14 and 15, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. When we think of dogs in modern American contemporary culture, we think of small little domesticated animals, lap dogs. Now, I think of my ornery little dogs, <laughs> and uh, I just kind of suits them. Uh, you know, I go, I like to go outside when I'm mowing the grass and the, and the uh, windows are open, they start barking. And then I come over to the window where they can't see me and I start making dog barking noises inside there and they start freaking out, running around. You know, there's some evil enemy trying to attack our home. And I'm thinking, I always tell them when I walk in and the little dogs are barking at me, I always think, what if attacker broke in here, what would you pugs do? <laughs> Beg for treats? Roll over on your big fat bellies and ask them to pet you? But that's not the dogs that David has in mind. If you want to know the dogs of the ancient Near East, they still have packs of wild scavenging dogs in Africa today. They're like one step down on the totem pole from hyenas. You do not want to be caught in an open field with a dozen of these things unarmed. You probably don't want to be caught in an open field with a half a dozen of these things unarmed. I mean, these dogs are mean, like mean, rabid coyotes. Welcome to Indiana. And, uh, you know, you ever, where I'm from, at least you don't want your big dog to get out. Where I'm from, they actually will lead the dog out in the middle of a field, uh, and uh, a pack of coyotes will attack your dog. I don't know if they do that here. But they'll get one that's kind of like a chaser dog. Did it get your big dog to follow it out there in the middle of a cornfield somewhere? And there'll be a half a dozen of these other coyotes out there waiting for them. And that's kind of like what David has in mind. Rabid, mean, ornery, bloodthirsty, scavenging dogs that roam the streets looking for a morsel. They're foaming at the mouth. They're ugly. They're ornery. They're down. They need to be put in the humane society, these dogs. David says, that's what Saul's soldiers are like. They're my dogged enemies. I want to read to you a quote from an English writer from the 1800s. He described what it was like to his visit, uh, in his visit to the city of Constantinople. So Constantinople is the old world name for Istanbul. It's in Turkey. Albert Smith says, quote, The whole city rang with one vast riot. The yelping, howling, barking, growling, and snarling, snarling were all merged into one uniform and continuous, even sound, as the noise of frogs becomes when heard at a distance. For hours there was no lull. I went to sleep and woke up again, and still, with my windows open, I heard the same tumult going on. Nor was it until daybreak that anything like tranquility was restored." There were packs of roving, violent dogs roaming the streets of Istanbul in the 1800s, the writer says. I'm sure it must be similar to the uh, same thing today. 
This is what David has in mind. The idea is that David viewed the soldiers of Saul who sought to take his life. They were like scavenging, ravaging dogs. Should we be afraid of our enemies who are like bloodthirsty, rabid dogs? Should we be afraid of them? Well, let's ask God what he thinks in verse 8 of Psalm number 59. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. Who's, who's the Lord laughing at? He's laughing at the dogs. That's what I do to my dogs. I just laugh at them. I wake up laughing at my dogs, and I go to bed laughing at my little dogs. There's a lot to laugh at with them. But the Lord's laughing at them not because they're amusing, but because they're powerless to stop God's purposes from going forward. These rabid dogs can't stop the servant of God, David, the future king of Israel. And David knows that. Psalm 37, verse 13, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Now, I want to share a couple highlights with you, and then we'll be done. Notice something that happens in verses 10 through 13. There is a gradual progression. Verse 11 by your power, bring them down. Verse 12, let them be trapped in their pride. In verse 13, let them consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more in verse 13. This is important. What is so unique about David's second prayer is that David asked God to destroy his enemies. Now, we don't pray like this. We've talked about these kind of prayers. This is an imprecation prayer. This is a prayer of cursing against God's enemies. But David prays that God would destroy his enemies, but not all at once. What does this mean? I want you to notice verse 11. But do not kill them, O Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. Notice this phrase, do not kill them or my people will forget. We learn, and this is what it is. Here it is. If there is a God then why does God permit bad things to happen? How many people have ever heard that question asked? I've heard that question my entire Christian life. Psalm 59 answers that question. And it answers it in five ways. We learn at least five things from the sovereign God who allows evil to continue temporarily. Number one. So we can see that sin and evil are always short-lived. Number two, so we can see sin carries the seeds of destruction within itself. Number three, so we can see judgment always comes upon the wicked in the end. Number four, if God did not permit evil, we would never learn anything from it and would not grow away from it. In summary, listen to verse 13, the last part of it that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. When evil emerges, God tolerates it for a little time until it stagnates and falls to the ground because of its inner corruption. And finally, God decisively judges that sin. David must have understood this principle for a very long time in his life. Because these words in Psalm 59 mirror almost exactly. 1 Samuel 17 verse 46, listen. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. God allows evil for a short period of time. 
to teach human beings that evil will not flourish, that evil will not go unpunished, that evil will not go unjudged, that there is a God in all the earth and that God will do right. The next time somebody asks you if there's a God, then why does he permit evil? Tell them so that he can teach us that evil is wrong and that he is the judge and that he will bring justice. He most certainly will. Verses 9 and 17. He said, oh, my strength, I will watch for you. In verse 17, oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. The word watch and the word sing in the Hebrew language are one letter different. If you was to look at them, there's only one letter between the word watch and the word sing that's different. What does that mean? They who first watch for the Lord in patience, God will put a song on their lips later. This is a very powerful truth. The word watch and the word sing sound and look nearly the same in the Hebrew language. And what that means is, is when we wait and when we watch for God to answer our prayers, we are one letter away from singing and rejoicing in Him. Alexander McLaren said, Trust God as what He is and trust Him because of who He is. And see to it that your faith lays hold on the living God Himself and on nothing besides. Let's pray. Lord, your servant David was able to say, God is my fortress. Because in verse number 9, he watched for the Lord. And then in verse 17, he sang unto the Lord. Because David watched in patience for God to answer his prayer, David's watching turned into singing. Lord, help us to watch and to sing that you are our mighty fortress, just like David did. 